Thank you, Josh, for the opportunity uh, to be here with you and Allison and this congregation today and to share with you a little bit about Sim Relief. I'm so glad you got to meet Daryl when Daryl and I first sat down together and he was sharing with me his story. I'm just sitting there thinking, man, the grace of God is awesome when you hear Daryl's story. And really, he's the embodiment of what Sin Relief is all about, of meeting needs and seeing God change lives. And really, the mission of Sin Relief is to serve the churches in carrying out Christ's great commission through ministries of compassion. And in doing that, we have five major areas that Sin Relief focuses on. First of all is strengthening communities. What is that about? It's really largely dealing with poverty issues, dealing with hunger issues, dealing with matters of clean water. Many of our IMB missionary projects that we support have to do with drilling a well to provide clean water uh, in different communities. Just got a report a few months ago about one of our missionaries in reaching out into a small Muslim village had never had clean water, helped them. He was from an engineering background, put in a new well, and over 40 of those Muslims have now come to Christ. There's, there's a little Bible study, really a little church that is beginning there by meeting human needs like that. Secondly is care for refugees. With that disastrous ending to the Afghanistan war, we know that there are going to be 50 to 100,000 Afghan refugees that are going to need to be assimilated into American culture. And helping them get resettled and being able to hear of the love of Christ through people like you and churches like this one is a huge opportunity God has given the church. The world literally coming to our doorsteps. But we also are ministering to refugees around the world. And Ann and I have been in those tents there on the border of Lebanon and Jordan where Syrian refugees have gathered and are stuck there. And it is incredible how what is a mostly Muslim peoples are so open to the gospel today because they're sick and tired of the hatred and violence in Islam. And there's just a wide open spirit about hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So ministry to refugees is a key area. But the third area is ministry to children and families. We do work with foster care issues, seeking to support families in adoption, working with some crisis pregnancy centers to help them in their work in that regard. The fourth area is battling human trafficking. As you heard Daryl speak of a situation they were dealing with there, this is a very labor-intensive ministry because these young girls that are trafficked and come out of what is one of the most hideous evils of today have so many scars, so many problems, so much counseling is needed, so much care is needed, and so much protection is needed for those. We have centers in LA and New Orleans in the States and in Thailand and India internationally. And then the fifth area that maybe many of you may be aware of is crisis response to storm relief. Sin Relief was actually a ministry of the North American Mission Board to work with our state disaster relief teams when storms and crisis would come up. And yet when Paul Chitwood, the president of IMB, began to talk to me about leading this ministry from an international perspective, we talked about the possibility of combining with NAM. And so for the first time ever, the International Mission Board of our convention and the North American Mission Board have a joint ministry. It's never happened before. But to have a joint global ministry dealing with ministries of compassion in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I try to remind our staff regularly, probably not regularly enough, but to remember we can help people who are hurting and make them feel a, better, a little better and their life be a little better for a period of time 
But if they continue on their journey to hell, we have missed their greatest need. And we want to always be sure that the gospel, the good news of Christ, is shared with people that we're ministering to along the way. So that's a brief overview about sin relief. But I realize you're here not to hear so much about sin relief. Is you're here in church to hear from the Lord. And we can only do that by looking to his word. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 25. This is the last parable of three, and it is really the concluding words of Jesus in two full chapters of Jesus speaking about his second coming. We're going to be studying verses 31 through 46 of Matthew 25. And in honor of God, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're physically able. And we're going to introduce our text as Jesus does. In verse, we'll only read verses 31 through 33, but we'll be studying to the end of the chapter. Listen to the word of the Lord. But when the Son of Man comes in all his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Today, we speak about the judgment. Let's pray. Father, as we stand before you, the King, the Lord, the ruler and creator of all the universe, what a privilege! to have you speak to us from your word. And so, Lord, may we hear it, may we believe it, and may we apply it to our everyday life, especially today, Father. May we apply it to our everyday life. And, Lord, as always, when Josh or anyone stands in this pulpit, may Jesus Christ be central and glorified by all that is said here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Long time to stand through the whole sermon. Get comfortable. Judgments are a part of life. They're part of life. Those of you who are students, you know that judgments are part of life because tests come up. You know, I don't think I've ever to this day felt pressure like I felt at Carolina. I, you know, I confess. I'm a game cop up here in Clemson country. That, that all right? Josh doesn't mind that, I don't think. But when I got to final exams, I have never felt such pressure because I knew it was pass or fail, pass or fail. It was all on the line. That's judgment day. And then the Olympics just started there in China. A lot of discussion about that. A lot of judgments being made about it being in China. But one thing for sure, Ann and I were watching those lovely skaters last night. Bless their heart. How do they do that? You know, it's just incredible. But when they get finished... They face a judgment. Those judges give the score. Did they do good? Did they do bad? Some of you, many of you have a supervisor, a boss, somebody you're accountable to. And judgments are made about your work performance. And then I think about when I'm sometimes watching a major trial and they come to the time when the jury delivers the verdict and I see the tension on the face of that person that's on trial. Can you imagine such tension? Because a judgment has been made about whether or not that person is guilty or not guilty. 
Now, Jesus is speaking to us today about the final, ultimate judgment that we all face. Everyone here. And Jesus is telling us that every person in this room is one day going to be clearly identified on the left or the right in his judgment. Let's look and see what he says. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, Jesus is concluding two full chapters where he's speaking about his second coming. And you know, one of the great burdens I have about Bible-believing evangelical churches is how teaching about Jesus' second coming is almost overlooked completely. It's like we stop right in the middle of the story. The middle of the story is that Christ died for our sins and Christ rose from the dead. But that's just the middle of the story. The end of the story is that Christ is coming again and Jesus speaks a great deal about his second coming. And he talks here about when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. And you can read about it. Go back later this week, maybe later today. Read Matthew 24, verse 30, where he talks about appearing in the clouds. And everybody will see him. And some of you are sitting there kind of snidely saying, well, it's going to be over Israel. We won't be able to see it because the earth is in the shape of a circle. We won't be able to say, yes, you will. Because of Armageddon and the troops under the Antichrist gathered there by the millions from nations all around the world, sadly, including the United States. CNN, Fox News, everybody under the sun with the press will be there to see this great gathering at Armageddon. And then Jesus appears in all of his glory in the clouds. That's what he's speaking of there in Matthew 24. And he says, all the angels will come with him. Read later on in Revelation 19, 11 following about when he appears in the clouds, he will come not only with the angels, but with his church that will have been raptured sometime before his second coming. Because you read about the great marriage feast of the Lamb, Jesus the Lamb, with his bride, the church, celebrating the completion of the mission of the church and anticipating what it's going to be like when he comes in this great judgment on the Antichrist and evil forces around him there. So that is described by Christ. But he goes on to say, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Go later today. Look up Isaiah 9, verse 7. You'll recognize some of the words from Handel's Messiah. And it describes how the Messiah will one day come and reign from the throne of David. You know, one of the reasons Ann and I, my wife and I, love to lead trips to Israel is when you're there, you're not just studying history in the past as described in the Word of God, but you're there studying and anticipating history in the future. Because Christ not only ascended from the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem, but one day in the future, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to enter the east gate of Jerusalem, and he's going to reign from the throne of David over all the earth. And when you're there, you get to anticipate, man, this is the site where that is going to occur. Man, that's exciting. But he goes on. He says in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, what is being described here is the people groups of all the world. Now listen, are you listening? Don't miss this. When you see the word nations in the Greek, it comes from the word ethnos or ethnos. And it really means people groups. Because think about it. 
When Jesus is talking about going and reaching all the nations on the face of the earth, in the first century, the nations were named differently. The geographical boundaries were different. You could go back as recent as 1900 and look at a globe of the world, and you won't recognize a lot of those nations. You won't recognize a lot of the geographical boundaries because Jesus knew that nations change their names and boundaries change. But one thing that doesn't change that much that stays constant is people groups. And the word ethnos is where we get our word ethnic or ethnicity in describing the many people groups of the world. Missiologists tell us there are over 11,000 people groups on the face of the earth. They have a common language and a common culture. Some of them are groups of 100. Some of them are groups of mega millions of people. But there are about 11,000 plus people groups. And over 7,000 of them are considered largely unreached. That means less than 2% of the population is a follower of Christ. But of those 7,000, about 3,000 of those people groups are unreached and unengaged with the gospel. That means there's no known Christian, no known church or Christian ministry of any kind among that people group. And Jesus, in giving us the Great Commission, wants us to take the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth. But what is interesting here in verse 32 is nations is plural, and it's actually the Greek word ethne. Now realize, some of you are not here to hear a seminary lecture on Greek words. I understand that, but this is important. Ethne really shows the plurality of these people groups. In other words, individual peoples of those people groups. That's what Jesus is communicating, and his audience in that day would understand that one day everybody on the face of the earth is going to be divided into two groups. You're either going to have the sheep or the goats. And that means everybody that is in this room today is going to wind up in one of these two groups. Which group will you be? Which group will you be? Well, look at what Jesus teaches in this parable. First of all, he speaks to the sheep. And think about how sheep and goats are different. Think about how very often they're intermingled in this world. I know when we go to Israel and we look for, at a distance at a shepherd with his sheep, it looks like they're all sheep, but you get up close, they're sheep and goats. You could tell the difference, but in this world they're intermingled. The shepherd knows the difference. And what we see here is that Jesus begins to speak to the sheep, and sheep are different from goats. Goats are very self-willed, very determined. They're going to get what they want. Sheep have to be dependent on a shepherd. They're helpless without a shepherd. They're completely different from a goat, even though at times they look very similar. So he speaks to the sheep, verse 34. Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus is saying to the sheep that you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. Question, question. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus reigns. If Jesus reigns in your life, the kingdom of God is there. If Jesus reigns in your Bible study, the kingdom, kingdom of God is there. If Jesus reigns in your family, the kingdom of God is there. If Jesus reigns in Taylor's first, the kingdom of God is here. It's wherever Jesus reigns. And he says about this, he says, these will inherit the kingdom. That means they receive it and they hadn't done anything to earn it. 
Right now, Ann and I are updating our wills. Anybody that's married with kids and kids are in different stages of life, you're going to have to update your will about every five to ten years because things change. We're updating our wills. In our wills, we have designated a good portion that's going to go to Christian ministry. And the other portion is going to go to our three sons. And they're all going to get the same thing. They hadn't earned it. They're just going to receive it because they're our three sons. And what Jesus is telling us is, look, no, we don't earn salvation. We inherit the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done for us, not because of what we have done for him. It is because of what he has done for us. We inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, those of you who prepared from the foundation of the world. Now, does that mean that God has determined who's in as a sheep and who's out as a goat? Is that what it means? I don't think so. You see, there's an understanding of the foreknowledge of God where he knows which group you and I are going to be in because he is God and he knows all. But there's also a mindset of determinism where almost a fatalistic culture. And in that regard, it's like the person has no choice. But God says every person has to make a decision of how we respond to the gift of his son. So we see there that combination of God knowing and foreknowledge but not necessarily determining. And if you still have further questions about this, consult your pastor, Josh, and he'll explain about the free will of man and the sovereignty of God and put it all together for you. Now, look at what Jesus says to the sheep as he identifies them. Look at what he says, verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, Jesus is identifying the sheep. He's talking about himself. We think of ministries like this. You think about what you heard from Daryl a few moments ago about those that reached out to he and his mom and helped them with food and needs in their life when they were homeless. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about the thirsty, that's helping people have drinkable water. The stranger, what is the stranger? That is the immigrant, the refugee, showing hospitality, welcoming them in, as we're hoping so many Christians and churches will reach out to these Afghan refugees to help them get resettled and to offer them the greatest gift they would not even heard about in Afghanistan. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only that, he talks about those that need clothing, those that are sick, those that are in prison. And look at how the sheep respond. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and bite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? In other words, they don't really get what Jesus is talking about. When did we see you like this? And look at how Jesus responds in verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now obviously he's speaking of the brethren. He's speaking of the church and how we're to care for the brothers and sisters in Christ in the body of Christ. 
But we also know Jesus was asked about who his neighbor was, and he not only made it clear who his neighbor was, it's anybody in need, and he told the story of the Good Samaritan. So we realize that what he's talking about in caring first for those in the body of Christ, the brethren, but also it goes to the least of these in mankind. And really, that is what sin relief is all about. You know, I was hearing a few weeks ago about one of our sin relief folks, one of our IMB missionaries that's been working there in a village of a people with another religion. When COVID hit, there was such desperation about starvation because they don't have a safety net there in South Asia like we have in the United States from their government. People literally scared to death they were going to starve. And there was a mother and father that sure, they were sure they and their children were going to starve to death. So they had decided to have one final meal together and poison their children and themselves so their children wouldn't have to go through the agony of a slow starvation and dying. And they had a knock on the door before that final meal, and it was one of the national Christians that had been led to Christ by your International Mission Board missionaries that was there to give them a month's supply of food for a family of four. And the mother and father began to weep, and then they confessed what they were about to do. And that mother and father gave their life to Christ right there. And they said, you know, folks from our religion haven't done anything and you Christians have come to respond to meet this basic need. And there's story after story after story that we hear through showing through ministries of compassion that we win the right to be heard to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a family that was not only saved physically, but you're talking about being saved spiritually, which is the greatest need of all. So Jesus is saying, how we treat others in need is how we treat Jesus. So question, question. How do you treat Jesus? According to what Jesus is saying here in the Word, in His teaching, this is His parable. How do you treat Jesus? Well, then Jesus talks about the goats. This is the other side. Then He will say also to those on His left... I kind of get tickled. These are on the left, the others are on the right, but you can do with that what you want to do. He says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is serious stuff. In the judgment, not only is there the reward for the sheep, the true followers of Christ, but then there is hell for those that are not. And he says, depart from me. And he talks about hell being prepared for the devil and his demons. You think about winding up with this kind of judgment in your life that is for all of eternity. He very clearly, this is Jesus talking, an eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That is not only an environment you don't want to be a part of, but that's not a crowd you want to run with for eternity. That's not what you want to happen in your life. And yet there are a lot of goats that are in the room today. And many of you are members, active members of this church. But you're still a goat. How do we know this? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 42. For I was hungry and 
You didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in and show me any kind of hospitality as an immigrant or a refugee. I was naked and you didn't offer me any clean clothes. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. And then the response of the goats is identical to the response of the sheep. Verse 44, then they themselves will answer, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't care for you? And Jesus responds, then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Question. If the judgment is today, which group will you be? Are you a sheep or a goat? Will you be with the sheep or with the goats? And look at what Jesus says. He says it will be revealed by how you treat me. And how do we treat Jesus? By how we care for the least of these, those in need. This is a very sobering parable of Jesus. He offers no explanation. Sometimes in his parables he does, but not here. He just leaves it with us. So what are the key insights about Judgment Day that you learn from this parable of Jesus? Number one key insight, how we treat people in need is how we treat Jesus. So as you think about your life, your personal life, as you think about Taylor's first, how do you treat people in need? How do you treat Jesus? But secondly, listen carefully. Listen, are you listening? Jesus does not teach a work-based religion. And if you take this one parable out of context in light of all of Jesus' teaching, then you can come to a conclusion that he teaches a work-based religion. But Jesus does not teach a work-based religion. Let me read to you a couple of verses that really kind of capture what Jesus is helping us to understand. You see, he's telling us that our life and how we treat people in need shows it really reveals if we are a true follower of Christ or not. And so understanding that, listen to the words of James, James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. In other words, It should show if you are a genuine follower of Jesus. But James goes on, chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Well, even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, this is where it helps us to come to a full understanding. Please don't miss this. 
Jesus is not teaching a work-based religion. He is telling us that we reveal if we've genuinely been saved and are a true follower of Jesus by how we treat those in great need. Because that is how we treat Jesus. In that last verse of this parable, he talks about the righteous ones. How does a person become right with God? A person becomes right with God when they believe who Jesus is, is the Son of God, when they believe that Jesus has died on the cross for their sins. Why? Because all of us are sinners, and all of us are going to have to pay the punishment of our sin, which is death and judgment, unless somebody pays it for us. And that's what Jesus did to be our Savior. He died in our place. He paid the punishment for our sins so that when you and I confess our sin and are willing to put our trust in Christ, we're not only forgiven of our sins, but we are the righteous ones, not because we are, but we are made righteous because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And yet as we see the teaching of Jesus and we see the teaching of James, we realize we've got to understand what real trust means. Because if you say, well, I'm a Christian here at Taylor's First because I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross. I believe He rose from the dead. Well, that doesn't make you any different from the demons of hell. And they're not going to be in heaven. Read in the New Testament. It's very clear all through the New Testament. Who was the most clear in the New Testament about identifying who Jesus is? It was always the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. They have no doubt who Jesus is, but they're not going to be in heaven. So it comes back to understanding that word belief. And all through the gospels, all through the epistles, when you see that word belief, it is all about trust. It's about where you put your trust. Let me, let me explain it this way. I travel a lot now and in the Atlanta airport, way too much. But say I'm sitting at the gate one day, we're waiting on the pilot, the pilot shows up and somebody asked me, Brian, do you think that pilot can take that metal tube and fly you from Atlanta to LA where Daryl lives? I say, yeah, sure. No problem. Now that's where a lot of you are so confused and why a lot of you are still goats. Because you think because you believe that with your mind, you're going to wind up in eternity with the Lord. But that's not belief. Belief, as Jesus speaks about, that leads to salvation comes when I make a decision after making a statement to thinking that pilot could fly that metal tube from Atlanta to L.A., I then put my body and my life in the hands of that pilot and get on the plane. That's total trust. When my whole life is on the line. That's what faith is. And the reason in every church, like Taylor's First, in any other church, there are sheep and goats is because there are a lot of self-deceived goats who, because they believe with their mind who Jesus is, they think they're going to spend eternity with God. But that is not real belief. Real belief begins with intellectual assent as to who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross and how he rose from the dead. But then we decide to entrust our whole life and future and only hope for salvation and eternal life in his hands. That's total trust. That's what Jesus is talking about. So he's not teaching a work-based religion. But he is telling us that if we're really saved, it is revealed in how we treat people in need. Well, that still troubles us. That still troubles us. 
because the needs are so great out there and we know we're not meeting all these needs and you see really what happened with the goats you're talking about we see you go to a liturgical church one of the things we're weak on as baptists is confessing our sins in worship we're weak on that but you go to a liturgical service and they'll not only confess their sins they'll confess their sins of omission what is that that's the things they should have done but didn't do that's what jesus is talking about today the sins of omission and understanding that we realize that the needs are so great uh, we can't meet all the i mean think about the homeless situation you know i, I think about in, in atlanta almost every time you come off exit there there are people standing there with a sign homeless need help so how do we deal with this well we also know that when you study scripture in light of scripture and you see the teaching of the apostle paul where he says in thessalonians if you're not willing to work you're not going to eat oh my goodness that sounds just the opposite of jesus so it's not that Jesus is saying you be irresponsible and just care, carelessly spread out all this money wherever you see proclaimed needs. But there's stewardship of seeing if the need is real. Think about what Daryl shared with you about what he and his mom went through. That's real needs. But Josh and others on this staff will tell you that one of the real challenges in church life is you have all these people coming looking for help and you have to be a good steward to determine is it really a need because sometimes it's not. I mean, you think about the culture we live in, and last night we went to three different restaurants trying to get in because they didn't have enough people working there. Everywhere you go, looking for people to work. So you want to determine if it's real needs or not, which is very important, and that's part of being a good steward, but we want to have the spirit that Jesus is talking about in caring for those in need. Let me, let me give you an example. Years ago, Ann and I were with our boys in San Antonio. This homeless man comes up and says, I, I need some help, I, I need... I need some food. I said, well, you know, I'm not in the practice of giving money, and I'm sorry to have to say that, but so often it goes to drugs and alcohol and just uh, that kind of lifestyle. But I'll tell you what, I'll be glad to buy you lunch here, right here at McDonald's. And he looked at me, and he said, well, you know, I can get more food for less of your money if we can walk down the street to Taco Bell. I said, let's go. I mean, a man that industrious, I wanted to honor that. So me and the boys, we went down there to Taco Bell, and he chowed down, and obviously he had a real need that we needed to respond to there. So there's discernment involved, but there's also this. Now, listen, listen, don't miss this. Because none of us can meet all the needs, that's why we need to be in the body of Christ. You may not be the one at Taylor's in the prison ministry, but you sure need to have some folks in this church engaged in prison ministry. You may not be the one that's actually feeding the hungry, but you sure need some ministries here at First Taylor's that are feeding the hungry. We can't do it all, but we can be a part of the body of Christ, and that's where our tithes and offerings come in as we join with something greater than our own individual life, and that is the body of Christ, the local church. Then we live that out, but that's not all. That's why it's also good to be a part of a convention of churches. We're part of a convention of churches, 46,000 churches. And because this church, one of the leading givers to our missions programs in the Southern Baptist Convention, so much good y'all do. You get to join with the work like Daryl is doing in L.A. and all around the world through your generous giving in our convention of churches by giving to global missions. So then we get a picture of how important it is to be a part of the body of Christ and the church united together in going about doing these ministries of compassion. Why? So that the great commission can be fulfilled so that people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ and many can choose and make that decision to put their trust in him. That's what this is all about. 
gives us that bigger picture of practical application. But there's one other thing. In this life, don't forget that the sheep and the goats are intermingled. Don't forget that. The reason that there's so many goats and sheep in this room today is because they're intermingled everywhere. Everywhere. When we see those shepherds in Israel, and from a distance it looks like the sheep and the goats are the same, you get up closer and the shepherds knows which one is goats, which one are sheep. Well, in this life, they're all intermingled. But in the end, on Judgment Day, it'll be very clear. And Jesus will make it clear. So which group will you be? Jesus says that we reveal if we have really trusted Christ by how we treat people in need. So if you examine your life, which group will you be? No question is more important than that. The good news of the gospel is that Christ gave his life for all so that everyone in this room, even every goat in this room, can be transformed into a sheep, a part of the body of Christ, when you put your trust in him, don't miss out. You want to be ready for judgment day. Let's pray. Father God, you see it, Father. You see it. We don't see it. All these sheep and goats in this room are intermingled right now. But you see it. You see. You know who the sheep are in this room. You know who the goats are in this room. But Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much to come and give your life for all of us. To give your life for every one of us on the cross. And Lord, there are a lot of sheep that are here that are excited about following Jesus and trusting Jesus and serving Jesus. And there are a lot of goats here, Father. Maybe longtime members, leaders in this church, deacons in this church. And they're so self-deceived. But today, maybe as they realize, there's really nothing different in their life than the demons of hell. They both believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They believe what the Bible says about Jesus. But they never entrusted their life into the hands of Jesus. Right now, Father, may they come to you and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me. I've been confused. I've been self-deceived on this. I want to be sure I'm one of those sheep on Judgment Day. And I know that can only happen if I entrust my life to Christ alone, through your grace alone, so that I can receive salvation and eternal life and begin to live in a way that reveals how I treat Jesus day by day. Oh Lord, may it be.
We pray this prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. If you want to be sure about that decision, seek out Josh and some of your staff or your Bible study leaders. You want to be sure you're one of the sheep. Don't miss that opportunity to respond.